Welcome to the Freedom Fridays podcast with me, your host, Pete Clark, the Whispers Guy. Work seems to expand to the time that we give it. And I've been investing my time, occasionally on a Friday, to explore how we use our time, our energy, our attention, and the impact it has on our identity. I've been exploring over season one some of the mindset shifts in the handcuffs of I have to, to the freedom of I choose to. And I've shared some conversations, some tips, some tools about how you might want to invest your own time, your own energy, your own attention, how you might want to, if you choose to, make some changes to your identity, how you might have freedom from I have to and design a life around I choose to. If that's of interest to you, then this is the podcast for you. In season two, I'm going to be exploring some experts and asking them what freedom means for them and trying to help people work to live and not live to work. Trying to help people add life to their years and not just years to their life. So let's dive on in and here's season two. So welcome to this week's episode of the Freedom Fridays podcast. I have a fascinating guest this morning who, uh, having just had a chat uh, off screen, uh, we've realized we live about 100 meters <laughs> from each other. And here we are doing it in a digital forum, which is perfect. Uh, and I'll explain why in a second. But please, first of all, welcome to the show, uh, Christy Goodwin. Great to be here, Pete. Thank you for having me. And we are, as you said, within arm's reach, <laughs> but doing this digitally. Yeah, which is perfect because um, that's partly your expertise. You're a digital researcher, author, speaker, and going to share with us all sorts of things and tips and tools about the, the this ever-expanding, it feels, world of digital. And so, Christy, I, I start with the same question um, for everyone that I speak to. And it's very generic, so we can go anywhere here. In, in terms of the work that you do, what should we be seeking freedom from? I think I get goosebumps when I talk about this. I think <laughs> many of us, if we're really honest, are slaves to our screens. Um, we are tethered to technology, both professionally and personally. Um, you know, we salivate like Pavlov's dogs every time we get an alert or a notification or the ping of an email. You know, we cannot go, I call it going on holidays and going laptopless. You know, we still need to take our digital appendages with us. Research tells us 90% of people reach for their phone before their partner first thing in the morning. And 47% of us allegedly engage in a behavior i'm not going to look at you when i say this pete but it's called toilet tweeting using our oh. phone in the bathroom so i think that indicates to me that many of us are slaves to the screen and technology is wonderful i'm not you know demonizing technology at all but technology is designed to be our servant not our master and I think if most of us critically examine the relationship we have with technology, we would acknowledge that it certainly plays an important role, but switching off, digitally disconnecting is really, really challenging, but it is so vital for our performance. So for me, if I was to say, what is freedom? Freedom is certainly using technology, but using it in ways that is congruent with our most basic human biological drivers. I often talk about our biological blueprint. And I say, you know, we're not machines. We're not designed to be plugged in, switched on, processing information all of the time. And so we have these, I call it out, a neurobiological blueprint, these human constraints that we all have to work within, but we're not. And so this is why I think technology is having a huge impact I think there's very few facets of our lives where, you know, technology is crept into every crevice of our lives and it's here to stay. So we've got to start to find healthy and helpful ways to use it um, because otherwise, as I said before, we will be that slave to the screen. Christy, well, you've triggered <laughs> many thoughts. Uh, I've got already uh, about seven or eight, 10 lines of what about this? What about this? Thank, thank you. That was a, that was a very interesting and triggering set of language. And the one that triggered me most was 90% of people reach for their phone in the morning before 
the partner. That's astonishing. And I'd like to pick up later on the consequences of that. I've got two main kind of, I guess, introductory questions. How did we get here? Given you said it's not necessarily natural, how did we get here? And can we stop it? Great questions. So to answer your first question, I think if we're really honest, technology has been intentionally designed to hold our attention. We are now living um, in what's called the attention economy. And technology, particularly our leisure-based technologies, social media, streaming services, group chats, they have been designed to rob us, I think, of our two most important resources in life, our time and our attention. And again, there's a whole, I think there's three chief reasons how we've got here. And this also applies if any of your listeners are also parents, these three reasons also explain why kids throw techno tantrums, why they emotionally combust when we remove the digital appendage from their grip. It explains why we find it hard, as I mentioned, to go laptopless and, and shut the lid on our laptops, why we go on holidays and desperately try and find the one bar of Wi-Fi signal so we triage our inboxes or get a dose of the news feed that we need to catch up on. Mm. So I think the three big reasons, the first reason is that technology, particularly our leisure, but also our professional technologies, have been designed to tap into our three most basic sorry, three most basic psychological drivers. Mm -hmm. As humans, according to self-determination theory, we have three core psychological drivers, the need mm -hmm. for connection, yep. competence, and control. The online world fulfills those needs so perfectly. This is why for young people, multiplayer video games, social media, for us, why email is and group chats and things like Teams and Slack have become so immersive is that we are biologically designed to be part of a group, to be part of a tribe. So we fulfill that need for connection. The need for competence. You know, we want to be perceived to be competent by our peers, by our colleagues. So we will respond instantaneously to messages and emails. And that need for control is often met by Googling information or responding within a timely sense. So we fulfill those basic needs. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that when we are online, there are a whole lot of neurobiological changes happening. For most of us, being online is usually a pleasurable experience. Somewhere along the line, we got an interesting email. Maybe it was news of a promotion or praise for a job that we'd done well. And so we start to attach that sense of pleasure to our inboxes or to social media or to the, the crazy things that we watch on, on streaming services. And so our brain is actually giving us a hit of dopamine when we're on there. Now, the problem with dopamine is not only does it make us crave more of whatever that stimulus was that made us feel good, but dopamine floods our prefrontal cortex. So the part of the brain that helps us regulate our behavior, it's our impulse control center, it turns off when it's getting a hit of dopamine. And so this is why we, you know, find it really hard to switch off the, the Netflix series that we're watching um, because we're getting this flood of dopamine and it's overriding that regulation part of the brain. So that's the second reason. There's a whole lot of other things happening. We know many adults suffer from a condition called email apnea. We literally hold our breaths when we go in our inboxes. We dump a whole lot of cortisol. Our pupils dilate. Our heart rate accelerates. And so we're actually changing our physiology when we're online. Just recently, a study was done that tells us that we physiologically sigh much less when we're looking at a screen. This helps to regulate our, our sensory system and our nervous system. So we're often in this dysregulated state because we're spending so much time online. The third reason, and this is where I'm going to deflect responsibility and I'm going to wag out my finger at all the big tech companies and say it's all their fault. And if anyone's watched The Social Dilemma, um, you would be familiar with some of the very persuasive design techniques. Um, the fact that our notification bubble is red is no accident. Red is a psychological trigger for urgency and importance. The fact that there's a metric in your email notification bubble telling you that you have 49 unread emails drives that, that pressure to respond. The fact that when we are online, we get what we call intermittent variable rewards. So we never know when we go in our inbox, is there going to be something fabulous, terrible, or somewhere in between? If we knew 
that every 12 minutes, every 32 minutes, a great email will be in my inbox. I wouldn't go in and keep constantly checking. So I think it's this interplay of those three factors. Our, our psychological needs are being met. There are these whole raft of neurobiological changes happening when we are online. So our, our sensory and our nervous systems are dysregulated. And the third one is where we're going to deflect the blame and say it's the persuasive design techniques. Mm. Um, I think for most of us, the, the most persuasive design technique, especially for kids, and why this is such a huge issue for any parent with what I call screenagers, they, they, I call it the state of insufficiency. And in the online world, it's a bottomless bowl. There's no stopping cues. There's no endpoint. We never get to inbox zero. Um, our young people, there's always another social media post they can look at. There's always another thing they can watch on a streaming service. There's always another level in the game that they can get to. For us, there's always another Teams or a Slack notification. And so we never feel like we are done or complete. And again, a lot of the tech companies exploit this, this characteristic, the autoplay feature is now the default setting on YouTube and all the streaming services. So again, it's there's a whole lot working against us. But having said that, my answer to your second question is that there are things that we can do. We mm. can start to take back power. We can start to use technology in congruent ways with our neurobiology. Mm. Um, and that's really, I think, the, where we're, we're at. I think we're at a really critical juncture in time where people are actually mm. starting to question, you know, what is my relationship with my phone? And I think, you know, the, the pandemic really thrust that into the spotlight for many of us. Christy, look, we could probably spend the next two hours talking about tips for all sorts of different cohorts. And I'm going to go there. Uh, I would like if, if I'd just be interested in your view, um, kind of a parallel question. If, if technology is meeting all of those needs, to some degree or other, what's prevented us from having those needs met elsewhere prior to even technology coming on board? Or did we just, because we're most of us are asleep to our thoughts and our thinking that it was always going to get in? I think it was technology striking at the right time. And I think it's exemplified right. that, you know, I mean, many of us struggle with lockdowns because that fundamental need for human connection mm. was was fractured it was done and many of us would agree like nothing beats meeting in person you know thank goodness for zoom and teams and webex and all the other digital replicas but we know for example that we release oxytocin and oxytocin is the social bonding hormone when we are in close proximity physical proximity to people so i think um, those needs have always been there. I think we're now fulfilling those needs in a digital context and it's no replica. It's no substitute for those basic human needs that we've always had. Mm. Um, I also think that tech companies knew this. You know, we know that when Facebook, which is now meta, but when Facebook was being designed, not only did they have computer programmers and software engineers in the back rooms, they had psychiatrists, psychologists, neuroscientists. So they were very aware of, you know, some of the very persuasive techniques they could deploy to really tap into those psychological needs. I think mm. the chief one is that need for connection. The fact that we just, that is, there is no other need that, that tops that, irrespective of our gender, socioeconomic status, that really drives our human behaviour. Mm. And has it been your experience, Christy, what's the research telling us about, does oxytocin get released on Zoom, you know, on a 2D version? And the reason I'm asking is I think through the yeah. lockdown, many of us connected, I certainly connect with many colleagues and friends and family that I hadn't been in touch with for a while. And I remember on Sundays in the first lockdown, six families got together four o'clock on a Sunday and had like a trivia quiz. And it was great fun. It was, it was just a lot of laughs. And so is oxytocin getting released there? Look, I'm not familiar with any studies that have looked at that. Um, Stanford right. University are leading the field in terms of video meetings and the impact on the brain. And what they have, there's some really interesting things they have discovered. Do you want me to share? Yeah, of course, by all means. And again, it doesn't matter if it's Zoom, Teams, WebEx, they're just looking at generic video meetings. But they coined the term Zoom fatigue to try yep. and start to explore why is it that, yes, it's great to connect online, but it is depleting you know many people are saying you know I, I come off a day with back-to-back -back 
video calls and I am fried and I haven't had longer time in meetings. Um, although the research tells us we've seen a 158% increase in virtual meetings since the start of the pandemic. And what we know is there's a couple of really interesting things happening on video calls that is cognitively taxing. One of the things is that we know it is the very first time in history where we see what we look like in a social context. We see our mannerisms, our idiosyncrasies, our hair that is receding, our hair that needs doing, and it is amplified. It would be akin to us walking into a boardroom and putting a mirror directly in front of us. It's socially jarring. Hmm. The other thing, and we call that impression management. So we're, we're watching what's happening. The other thing that we know, and I think we all could share some great stories of the unsavory things that we wished we didn't see in the background of somebody's Zoom or text call, is that there's often superfluous information. In a social context, we're all in traditionally in an in-person setting, we're all in the same environment. So we're not, our brain isn't processing all the superfluous background information because that's a common denominator if we were meeting in person as opposed to online. But I have found, this one makes me laugh every time, is that one of the reasons we're finding online so taxing is because we are seeing, depending on the size of your monitor and the number of participants on the call, but typically we are about 60 centimetres away from another person's head. Now, that space, our brain reserves, it's called the intimate zone. It is reserved for cuddling, consoling, lovemaking, wrestling, and fighting. And all of a sudden, we are 60 centimetres from Bob from accounts on our Zoom or our Teams call or a, a prospective new client. And so it's socially jarring. And again, all of these little things are causing our brain to be in a much more stressed state. And Microsoft have also done some great studies on video calls, and they have clearly shown that fatigue sets in between 30 and 40 minutes on a virtual call. They've done brain scans. Um, and we also know that stress will accumulate throughout the day on video calls. And they're suggesting that we have that about a two hour threshold um, before stress becomes so heightened that it's almost hard to recover from. But again, they've also shown some really simple things, you know, putting in a 10 minute buffer between your video calls. Um, research tells us that closing our eyes for 10 seconds gives the occipital lobe, which is processing all the visual stimuli we're getting from video calls, it gives it a break. So again, there are things we can start to do to, to say, look, we are going to have more virtual calls, whether we like them or loathe them. How can we start to use them in ways that meet our biological needs? So I don't know. That's a really interesting one about the oxytocin. Um, I will see yeah. if I can anything there but I deviated sorry <laughs> no not at all because I've, I've often felt that the way I describe it is when you're meeting in person you have a molecule exchange yep, yep. Uh, whereas online it seems like we're having a pixel exchange yes that's a great analogy and it feels it feels even anecdotal I didn't know if there was any science it just feels anecdotal it feels very different yeah um, yeah, and, I, and there's other things happening. We've we've got truncated views of each other. So all of the, the regular body language and gesticulation. Yeah. We also know um, that it, depending on your internet speed, if there is a lag between you saying something and the other person responding, in real life experiences, that lag could indicate disapproval. It could indicate, you know, rumination about the idea. But again, we can misconstrue. That could just be a technical glitch that we're having. Um, the fact that sometimes you don't know when um, the next person is about to speak and you speak over the top. I mean, there's so many anomalies in this virtual hybrid space. Um, and again, there are all those little social cues that are really jarring for our brains. Um it, it, I'm, I'm dying to dive into the tips, Christy. I'm not going to hold off for a second. I thought like I cut the questions. <clears throat> I, don't, I know nothing really about the metaverse or what version is going to come next and blah, 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 blah. So I'm wondering, will the metaverse solve all this for us so we can then meet in a more wholesome way online? And is that going to be different to kind of 2D Zoom version? 
Look, the preliminary discussion in this space is indicating that, yes, we will have a more augmented reality. We will have um, a, 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 an experience, a digital experience that will more closely replicate an in-person experience. Um, but I'm not yet convinced that that's not going to be without its shortcomings. I mean, there is just, I think that the fact that when we all were let out of various stages of lockdown, that pure joy of seeing other people, even though you felt weird about do we do, we do the elbow tap, do we, you know, bump shoulders to say hello, do we pretend to cuddle? I, I just think that speaks volumes about this just fundamental need. Um, so I think yep. it will be a, a certain improvement on what we've got. And to be honest, tech companies are working brilliantly to try and come up with tech solutions, but they're not without their shortcomings. I'll, I'll There's an interesting one. So Microsoft said, look, we know everybody's stuck at home trying to do remote work and you're having a lot of virtual meetings and they called it the leaf blower effect. And so what happens when the neighbour next door gets out his leaf blower right at a critical point in your presentation or your meeting? I know, we'll use AI and we will automatically pick up any background noise for you as the speaker or as the as a um, attendee and we'll automatically mute it. So you don't have to worry about the background noise. But what happened in this particular study was that the person who was in that environment still could hear the leaf blower didn't mute their sound so these people were agitated but their colleagues on the zoom call didn't hear that sound and so they were behaving in really peculiar ways or they felt like they needed to say look just to let you know there's a leaf blow going on I really can't concentrate so their AI solution didn't actually solve the problem it actually amplified the problem so I, I think we go back to you know good humans, good technology, then there will be some exciting things, but I just don't think we can ever replace that human experience mm. yet. Um, another big question, perhaps, Christy, for you to share your thoughts on. Um, I appreciate, you know, our time on this earth is, you know, you know, minimal. We look at the doomsday clock and how close we are to midnight and, you know, I get that. So we were obviously very early in the technology piece, but I'm interested in, what are you seeing? What the, does the research tell you that it's doing to our brains and therefore our evolutionary biology over time? Is it affecting how we are humans? Is it affecting humanity in a biological way? Yes. So I'm often asked, people often say to me, we've evolved so much that we can multitask. We are now quite prolific at, at you know, listening to music and responding to a team's message and hearing an email and and the research still conclusively tells us that we actually call it task switching or continuous partial attention. We cannot do it. As, as humans, and huge public apology to all the men who have ever been told that they should multitask like women. Women, we got it wrong. Men, you were right. Our brains are physiologically incapable of what we call parallel processing information. And it is having a huge dent in our productivity when we think we can constantly task switch or split our attention. Um, we know, for example, that say we're doing some deep focused work and the ping of an email comes in and we may, we may not open it, but we may see the subject and the sender and then it dances off the screen and we keep going back to our, our deep focused task that we were doing. Research, and this has been repeated many times, Research tells us it takes the average adult 23 minutes and 15 seconds to get back into that deep focus state. It's referred to as the resumption lag. And that's just one example of the many digital diversions that are splitting our attention throughout the day. So we're seeing some research that basically is telling us as humans, we have to monotask. We cannot multitask. We're seeing... Um, I think the work I'm doing at the moment is suggesting that technology and the digital intruders are eroding some of our biological buffers that used to help us deal with stress and that also used to help us be focused and alert. And these are, these are the two complaints I'm hearing from lots of people. My stress levels have risen. We've got you know, global evidence telling us that 34.7% of adults now have clinical symptoms of burnout, um, oh. which is really concerning because burnout is unresolved stress. 
Um, so I think technology, our digital habits are impacting our stress, not in significant ways, but I call them micro stresses. And as humans, we are designed to cope with stress. We're designed to cope with short bursts of stress and we're designed to close the cycle on our stress state. But our digital always on world, there are constant little micro stresses that accumulate. And, you know, we go from a video call to our inboxes to an alert on our phone, back to a calendar reminder on our screen. And these little micro stresses are accumulating. So I think some of our digital habits are eroding some of the, the the biological buffers that used to help us cope with stress and make us focused. And I think the three, our sleep, our sleep is being significantly shifted and shaped by technology. It's not the only cause, but our sleep is definitely. Our physical movement levels, we are more sedentary than we have ever been. Um, and we've displaced the incidental movement, especially if we're working remotely. You know, we used to get up and walk to the coffee shop or walk to the photocopy room or to the printer. Um, and I think our exposure to sunlight, I think they're the three big ones that are being shaped. And again, we've, we've got these human needs. So the research, I will admit, is still in its infancy in this space. But I think there is enough evidence to suggest that, yes, our brains are being altered, but perhaps mm. not the way we would want. Mm. Um, maybe a, a controversial question, Christy, and then I'm going to dive into some of the tips and I want to link it specifically to sleep, first of all. I've read inconclusive and often contradictory views that, you know, digital, you know, having an iPhone, using earbuds actually is causing EMF to infiltrate our brain and it's changing our brain. And I don't know where to these days look for the truth. What, what's your view on the, I guess, the dangers of that, if at all? Great question. And I will say, I used to think that people that worried about this were crazy scientists, people that, that had run off with the fairies and had let the truth escape them. <laughs> I went to, and this will make me sound very boring, but I went to an electromagnetic radiation conference um, with leading global leaders in this space. And I left that conference. My husband now tells people Christie's become a Wi-Fi warrior and a Wi-Fi warrior. Um, and I am here to say that we don't yet have enough conclusive evidence to prove that Wi-Fi is safe. And if I'm really honest, I don't want to be alarmist, but in some ways we are conducting a bit of a living experiment. Mm -hmm. The World Health Organization and the American Academy of Pediatrics suggests minimizing Wi-Fi exposure to children. So keeping routers out of high traffic areas of the house, turning Wi-Fi routers off when not in use at night, avoiding young children using phones up against their head, um, avoiding using phones when you've got a really weak signal because your phone's actually pumping out radiation to pick up a signal. I, to be honest, have read enough research that tells us that we don't have necessarily proof of harm we far enough down the path have we done enough empirical research to actually substantiate that we do have evidence that tells us that with rodents there are potentially harmful effects so i, I acknowledge i'm cautious christy um, and so i probably err more on the side of caution so i think until we've got proof of, of, of safety i think we need to err on the side of caution so hmm. Not, you know, I, I walk around, I see young people with, you know, phones in their pockets or in their bras or on their physical body. You are pumping radiation through your body. Um, sleeping with them, we know many teenagers now have their phone adjacent or underneath, like literally on top of their, their devices. Yeah. So I think minimizing our exposure where we can. So switching it off at night, yeah. avoiding using it um, when we've got a poor reception, sending a message as opposed to picking it up, putting it on loudspeaker more than you do up against your head, popping in headphones where you can. Um, again, I think just minimizing our exposure yeah. Because um, I would hate to come back in 10 years with the evidence that tells us that it is having a detrimental effect. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I would err uh, on caution. It reminds me of, do you remember, well, I'm certainly, I'm, you look far too young for this, the, in the, I think it was the 40s and the 50s when all the smoking adverts yeah. were yeah. suggesting, this is really cool, this is really good for you, and oh my God, now if we only knew. We had doctors that used to prescribe Marlboro cigarettes. Yep. Yes. So there is often that, and that was discussed at this particular conference. You know, um, we just don't know yet what the potential detrimental effects are. Yeah. So I think 
Yes, I think stepping back and again, going back to what we know we as humans need for sure, putting those biological needs first and foremost, and just minimizing, you know, even if you're at home, if you'll go down into a garage or an area underneath your house, your reception is really impaired. So try and minimize your exposure, mm. keeping it off your physical body for as much time as you can. Mm. Um, we created these, we've got little timber charging boxes so people can actually put their phone in them because a study um, was published a couple of years ago that told us that just seeing your phone even if it is on silent and do not disturb mode and face down will reduce your cognitive performance by 10 percent so wow <laughs> simply seeing your phone makes you 10 percent dumber because you're sitting there your your brain is starting to think what message yeah. will i need yeah. i replied to that tricky client email there's, I've seen these online, uh, Christy, which is kind of different but similar, where I can't remember what they're called, but the, the essence of it was you could take um, uh, a bag of cookies and put them in these lock boxes, but you can see them. So you reach for the cookie, but you've set on a 20-minute timer. Yep. So your, your needs, oh, I want a cookie, I want a cookie. Oh, right, press open, and it takes 20 minutes for it to open. By then, possibly, hopefully, most of the desire to have the cookies gone. Um, and I'm guessing it's the same sort of principle. Yes. So we know um, Jill Bolt-Taylor conducted a study a couple of years ago looking at cortisol, and she discovered something very interesting, and that is that cortisol only lives in our body for 90 seconds. So when we feel like we want to reach for our phone and that adrenaline sort of rising and you really feel like you need to, you've basically got to ride the urge. And so we've got to try and, and overcome that in 90 seconds. So if, and, and the problem, this is the problem why our phones have become so immersed in our daily lives is because they're frictionless. I can literally, I don't even have to tap in a six digit passcode anymore. I can just look at it and unlocks. And I tap and there's a gateway to what I need. So other strategies that I often say is take your tech temptations off the home screen of your phone. So when you go to unlock the phone, heaven forbid, make a phone call, all of a sudden, if it's LinkedIn or if it's TikTok or if it's the cricket app or if it's the news site that draws you in, drag that off the home screen. Um, another really simple strategy is to log out of your tech temptations because, again, I know you can hopefully, if you don't have digital dementia, you'll remember your passcode, but what you're doing is just creating that, that greater friction so that, again, it, it's putting up that barrier so it's not as easy and effortless as what our phones have been designed to, to be. Wow. Christy, this is one of the main reasons I started this podcast was purely to speak to people like you and be interested and intrigued. And I could listen and ask more <laughs> questions, but I'm conscious of you said, you know, online 30 to 40 minutes. So um, I may speak to you offline about a further conversation, but I'd like to pivot um, if I would, if you wouldn't mind with some of the tips, and I'm going to start with perhaps a counter view. Um, I'm, I'm sure you might've heard of a, a lady. I think she's based in Harvard called Kelly McGonigal. I heard the story um, uh, on a Tim Ferriss podcast where they did some research and in terms of sleep, right, again, we continue and more often now see sleep is a superpower, getting to sleep, staying asleep, quality of sleep, REM, all that sort of stuff. The, the one piece of research that she was talking about was people that used um, Tetris for 10 minutes prior to going to sleep got to sleep quicker and better which seems counter. To all of the things we know that wonder if you've come across that and okay, two particular idea would be. Back. Good. You're okay, you're back. Sorry, I'm not sure what happened there. I heard the question about Kelly and the, the Tetris being counter to our yeah. conventional sleep advice. So my theory here, and again, I, I have heard this particular example because most conventional advice is that we should have a digital curfew 60 minutes before we go to sleep because the blue light effect is affecting yep. our melatonin production. We also know, interestingly, a recent study is telling us that blue light exposure is not only delaying the onset of sleep, but once we do finally fall asleep, it is creating shorter REM and deep sleep stages. 
these two stages of our sleep cycle are critical for memory consolidation. And this is why during the pandemic, many people said, I'm still getting the same, you know, hours of sleep, but I'm just so tired. What's going on? And what we know is that many people, because they had more time in front of screens, they had less time out in natural sunlight, which we know resets the circadian rhythm. And these two things combined meant that they weren't getting that deep restorative sleep. What I think Kelly's example points to is, and we have to be really careful because I would hate for people to say, oh, Christy said playing video yeah, games. That's right. Every yeah. teenager listening to this will be like, bum, this woman said that playing video games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. With Tetris, we know it's quite methodical. It's very repetitive. And so what that would possibly do is enter the brain into an alpha state. And the alpha state is where we're focused and we're in a, a relaxed state. That is really important that we enter that state as one of the precursors before we go to sleep. Mm. However, if we'd had a control group, and this is where the researcher in me wants to say, hang on, let's have some other variables. If we had a control group who were scrolling social media right before they went to sleep, another control group that were playing a different type, you know, fast-paced first-person shooter video game before they went to sleep, I think we'd see different results. So I think what Kelly's study perhaps points to is not so much the screen, but that calming, restorative, hypnotic type of activity that we should be doing before sleep. Would you? Yeah, yeah, that, that's that, yeah. The the essence of it, and I'd have to listen again to be accurate, but the essence of it, I think, was it was helping people who struggle to get to sleep because they're so wired. They've got these thoughts pinging in and out, and. Tetris was the simplest, easiest example to take us out of our head, if you like, onto, unfortunately, a screen because it's a visual representation and then takes us out of the kind of noise and wired inside our head. So we've got yep. some external representation, which I think slips us from beta down to alpha. Yes. Yes. And, and, and that's why many of us are in this elevated stress state over the last couple of years, because we are in a constant beta state. We go from video call to video call and beta for anyone who's wondering, it's the busy brain state. Mm. And we are designed to be in beta states, but not constantly throughout the day. And so I think, again, we're working against the way our brains are designed. So I think anything that you can do um, that helps you into that relaxed state will be optimal for sleep. But my suggestion would be making it screen free or I often say do a tech swap. You know, if you really must do something on a device at night, watching television is a better choice than watching something on your phone or your tablet for two reasons. Most televisions don't emit as much blue light depending on your model. And hopefully we don't sit as close to the television as we do our phone, laptop or smartphone, uh, tablet. Um, so that can be a great, better choice. Listening to music is much better than tapping, swiping and pinching. Listening to a podcast or an audio book mm. um, or doing a mindfulness app are better choices. So it's not a hard mm. and fast rule. Um, we also know keeping phones ideally out of bedrooms. Yeah. Um, this is one. Just give me a moment. I'll just pick mine up. It's just here. Um, this is an Australian-designed product. Um, this is working wonders for families. Um, these are charging boxes. So it's called InCharge Box. So it is a device that holds your 15 laptops, 12 smartphones, <laughs> and it's a metal case. It's got breathing ports. Um, so you literally plug the devices in, you lock it, and out of sight, out of mind till the next morning. Um, so I often recommend that families create um, I call them their digital guardrails mm -hmm. um, coming up with, you know, have a landing zone, have a set spot where the devices go, mm -hmm. um, have that digital curfew um, and hold yourself accountable. Um, Christy is fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm going to dive into some of the tips that I'd love you to share. Uh, and I'm going to be selfish for a second. I'm going to go sleep first. Then yeah. I'm going to go to uh, kids, but I want to talk about if, if possible, you know, the younger kids, primary school, secondary and then older kids in some way so lots to talk about there and then i'd probably like to finish with if i may some of the i guess do's and don'ts if you are trying to be productive and do some deep work and kind of the, the workplace productivity aspect so um have you got a couple of major do's and don'ts or tips around sleep yes 
So my first one is definitely establishing that digital curfew, ideally 60 minutes. Um, another tip is to keep phones out of your bedroom. I know a lot of people say, but they're my alarm clock. We've been creating some digital wellbeing boxes. And one of the gifts that we put in our wellbeing boxes is a good old fashioned timber alarm clock. If you would disregard that advice, which I know a lot of people do, and your phone comes into your bedroom, my two rules, two non-negotiables, it must be on do not disturb mode. Research from a, a, an Australian university tells us that one in 20 Australians are woken up each night because of alerts and notifications. When we are woken up, we do not go back. We don't pick up from where we were when we fall back asleep. We go back to the beginning of the sleep cycle. So a lot of people aren't getting enough completed sleep cycles. Um, and the other reason is if you see it, to get a glass of water, go and go to the bathroom, just seeing your device can be a psychological trigger to, for you to start to think about it. Yeah. Um, if you do, say you're meeting a deadline, there's a really critical task and for whatever reason you have to be online at night, my two strategies, number one is dim the brightness on your screen. Mm -hmm. So go just go into the device's settings and dim the brightness. And number two is to consider investing in some blue light blocking glasses. Um, they right. will block um, a lot depending on the make and the model um, there are some that can block 50 percent some block 80 percent of the blue light that's emitted from your screen um, I'm just careful who I recommend them to because a lot of teens think well I just put glasses on and I can game or scroll until midnight and then yeah. turn off and go to sleep so yeah, yeah. cool so that, that may be that, that pivots nicely into the, the kids because um, my youngest I've got three kids my youngest is 18 and, and like many kids, I think of all ages, um, we haven't been that good at disciplining them with digital curfews. So they've, they're just adults now. Um, I did buy a blue light blocking um, screen protector. Right. Hoping yeah. that my youngest is never going to wear the orange glasses. Yes. But she might not even notice this kind of purple hue that shows up on the screen because it's a, it's a blue light blocking uh, protector. Now, does that make any difference? They can work, but yes, it was an flux. I can't remember, but I think there's other, there's a number of brands. I just oh, I hadn't seen that before. I thought, oh, what an easy again, an easy way to try and solve the problem that we shouldn't have in the first place. Yes, so they can work really well. So those okay. filters. Yep. Yeah, so my tips for parents, um, I've got three. Um, I talk about the parents need to be the pilot or the co-pilot if you've got teenagers. Yep. So pilot for primary school, co-pilot for teenagers of the digital plane, meaning that you need to be sitting alongside your kids in this digital world. And pilots yep. get freebies, right? Pilots establish boundaries and borders with their kids and teens. They don't present with an iPad contract or a technology agreement and say, sign here effective immediately. They do not work. What I recommend is sitting down with your children and your screenagers and coming up with what I call your tech expectations. What are the borders and boundaries around not only how much? Unfortunately, most parents narrowly obsess over the time metric. And time is important, but it's not the only thing. We've got to establish boundaries around what they do, when they use them, where they use them in the house, you know, where are your no-go tech zones? Um, how do they use them and with whom? Um, I think they're much more nuanced conversations rather than just the how much. And I'm going to say something a little controversial, but how much is actually going to become redundant in a few years? We will soon have wearable, we already do, wearable technologies, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, the notion of a screen, like screen time, it will be obsolete. So boundaries and borders are the first B. The second B is that we have to make sure that young people's basic needs are not being displaced by screens. Are they getting enough sleep? Are they physically active? Are they playing? Are they connecting with real people in real time? Are they eating good quality food? Um, are their basic human needs, physical and psychological needs being met? The third B is boredom. We have to digitally disconnect our kids. We have to let them sit with uncomfortable emotions. We have to get them used to, and I think it's important for two, two reasons. One is I don't know about you, Pip, I've never had a great idea while I've been in my inbox or, or in an Excel spreadsheet. Yep. My best ideas come when I'm swimming, when I'm running, first thing in the morning, in the shower, 
in the good old fashioned days when I used to get on a plane, we enter that mind wandering state. Our kids don't know what that's like if they're constantly being placated with the screen. And I think that leads to the second part of why boredom is just so critical because when they're bored, they get a sense of identity. They know what makes them tick, what interests them, what terrifies them, what they're you know, interested in, what disinterests them. So they're the three Bs, boredom, sorry, boundaries, yep. basic needs, and boredom. And it works whether you've got primary school or secondary school. Mm. It's just whether you're that pilot or more the co-pilot in the mm. older grades. I read recently, Christy, that we've kind of gone from screens to, at the moment, you know, wearables, um, and even now starting to do injectables. Yes. <laughs> Which is, for me, that's like, you know, day of the Triffids. That's like, you know... It's happening. It is. And the American, um, I think I want to get their title right. Um, it was an American College of Plastic Surgeons, I think, reported a huge surge in requests for cosmetic surgery once people were spending a lot of time on video calls. People were recognizing that their face looked, you know, because we were spending hours staring at ourselves. And not just that, it's our young people, our young people who are seeing doctored, filtered, edited photos, you know, completely unattainable, unrealistic depictions. That used to be just the supermodel. You know, I grew up in an era where it was Elle McPherson and yep. Cindy Crawford on the cover of a magazine. We all used to look and hope one day we could look like that. Now, the girl sitting next to you at school looks like that on her phone, but you see her at school and she looks nothing like that. So we've got these unattainable, um, and for young people whose you know brains are very impressionable, this poses yeah. a huge threat. I, I That scares me the most. Yeah. I haven't heard um, that analogy before. It's true though. Yeah. Um, Christy, I'm conscious of time and I, I'm, I, oh. I, I've really enjoyed the conversation, but I do want to try and tap into... The, the whether we're working from home or working from the office or working from anywhere really um the necessity of working from home means we probably have to have some sort of digital access i think depending on your role what what kind of do's and don'ts do you have for people who are working great uh so a couple of do's and don'ts so first and foremost you want to um to try and boost your focus you want to um try and do similar tasks in a similar location. So I don't mean you have to sit at your desk for the whole day because that would drive most of us crazy, but you need to do your, say you're doing your analytical work, you do that in one location. And what we know, we call it state-dependent recall. Our mm -hmm. brain is processing 11 million pieces of sensory data every second. The reason that we found the move to working at home or working remotely all of a sudden really challenging was because our brain was getting what we call muddled cognitive associations. Mm. All of a sudden, I'm sitting at the kitchen table and I'm in an Excel spreadsheet. Hang on, the kitchen table is where I laugh. It's where I eat. It's where I feel relaxed. And all of a sudden, I'm on a Zoom call or in an Excel spreadsheet. So we're getting these muddled associations. So try and work in predictable places for similar types of tasks. Um, another strategy, and this is what I believe is the silver lining of the pandemic for knowledge workers, is that now that we, most of us, have um, abandoned the idea that we have a nine to five workday in the office, five days a week, the biggest benefit is that we have now not created, I don't like the discussion around flexible work arrangements. I think the conversation needs to be shifted towards productive work arrangements. We no longer have to force ourselves into that nine to five work schedule. And I talk a lot about, and I've got a product that I'm more than happy to share and can give your listeners a discount to. Um, we... If we work, and this is what I talk about, working with our biology, if we work with something called our chronotype. Now, chronotype is our biological predisposition to be alert and focused at particular hours of the day. That is when we should be doing our deep focused work. Mm -hmm. And no, now that we're no longer bound to that nine to five schedule, if you're the early bird, so I'm a lark, I fire on all cylinders early in the morning, I get up and get my deep work done before a lot of people have even woken up. I'm a 4.30 riser, always have been. Not everyone's an extreme luck like that. 
Um, but that's the benefit that we now have more flexibility around when we work. So if we work and get that deep focused work done when our chronotype's peak performance window is, we get more done in less time. That is when we have to be really strict and we have to build a fortress around our focus. Those peak performance windows are critical. So whether you're the early bird, whether you're what we call a middle bird or an owl, we really have to structure our work days accordingly. Mm. Um, managing our notifications, you know, disabling any non-essential ones, um, turning on your essential ones, but batching or bundling them to come through at a convenient time. Creating VIP notification lists. So everyone else gets blocked during that peak performance window, but that client or the colleague who you do know will need to get to you can still get through that sort of digital barrier. Mm. So I think there's some of the things that we can start to do. I think creating power up and power down rituals is really important. Again, mm -hmm. to send those, those consistent cognitive associations to our brain that it's either time to work or time to switch off. Um, exposure to light, trying to make sure, especially in the early parts of the day, that we're being exposed to enough sunlight in our environment. If sunlight's not available, artificial lights, again, it will send a message to your brain that you need to be in that focused and alert state. Uh, Christy, while I'm conscious of time and I'm conscious of my own indulgence of tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. So I'm going to pause there if I may, but perhaps you can share with the listeners, how do people find out about what you do? How do they get in touch? How do they understand some of the research that you're doing? And we'll put it in the show notes as well. But how do, how do people do that? Yes. So the irony isn't lost on me that I'm encouraging you to curb your digital behaviours. Um, but I do try and share practical information. So yeah. I'm at um, drchristygoodwin.com. That's my website. Um, and I also try to share relevant up-to-date information, particularly on LinkedIn um, and also on Instagram. And for parents, a lot of parents tend to still prefer Facebook. So they're the sort of digital yeah. avenues where I try and share bite-sized bits of information. Um, so I will share those and I'll send the link. I've just released this chronotype assessment. So I'll send a link to, for you to put in the show notes and a discount so people can access it at a, a discounted That would be rate. great, Christy. Thank so you so much. Report. Pleasure. Uh, Christy, uh, thank you. Uh, again, this has proven to me selfishly why I like doing these because I found <laughs> that that information and conversation fascinating and I could go all sorts of left right north south ways but for the moment I'm going to say I'm going to say pause and say thank you so much for sharing your insights sharing your authenticity and just I've got a page full of scribbles and notes already just a, a ton of tips that I look at them and go nope not doing that I'm not doing that I'm not doing that yet there's there's definitely room for improvement so thank Wonderful. you for nudging me to be a little bit more free from my digital um, oh, what's the right word? Um, handcuffs. <laughs> I love that. Well, great to chat. And you, you watch, we'll bump into each other in person in the not too distant future. Yes, we will. Thanks again, Christy. Pleasure.